You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 5th day of November, 2011. Remember, remember the 5th of November, and here we are remembering. And while you're remembering, please remember this, CorbettReport.com. That's where you can go for previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted in the past. And now, the daily episodes of my radio show, my brand new radio show, Corbett Report Radio, that is coming out on republicbroadcasting.org. And I am putting the, the radio show up on my uh, on my website, and it's coming out through the RSS feeds. So hopefully you are getting and receiving that. And I have gotten a lot of positive feedback over the last few days, so thank you very much for that. I'm very excited for this brand new radio show and all of the possibilities that it affords me to come to you in its brand new medium, it's really a quite an amazing thing to be there doing this live on air every night, five nights a week. And on Friday nights, it will generally be a a Friday night highlight broadcast. So for people, I know I've had some people saying that I'm just doing too much uh, these days because then there's too much information on CorbettReport.com and they need someone to help highlight uh, some of the best works and things that are coming out. Well, on Friday nights on the radio broadcast, we'll be highlighting various uh, interviews and videos and other things that I've done in the past to give you a chance to to catch up and to reflect and to maybe discover some of the older material for the first time. So I'm very excited about all of the possibilities that this radio show affords. And once again, of course, I can't do any of this without your support. And on the notion of support, it has always been my intention to give some sort of token of, of acknowledgement and of, of appreciation to all of those people who have taken the time, effort, energy, and of course money to sign up to subscribe to the Corbett Report. That is to voluntarily donate 100 Japanese yen per month, about a dollar thirty or dollar forty per month, in order to help keep the Corbett Report up and running. Now that I do this full-time, I truly can't do it without your help and your support. So that's why I am so appreciative of each and every single person who has done that and has taken that step to subscribe. And it's always been my intention to try to repay that kindness somehow with something extra for the subscribers. I've been thinking about this for a while, and recently I've come up with two methods, and there will be more in the future, but for now I've I've thought of two different things that I, I'm doing uh, now for subscribers to CorbettReport.com. The first concerns the BoilingFrogsPost.com eye-opener reports, which I'm sure many of you are aware are coming out on a weekly basis, of course, at BoilingFrogsPost.com, and I'm posting previews of those videos to Corbett Report and to YouTube. But in order to access the uh, the video itself on Boiling Frogs Post, for the first three weeks of the release of these videos, they will be available only to subscribers of Boiling Frogs Post, as I'm sure most of you are aware by now. So, until November 25th, Anyone who has ever signed up to subscribe to The Corporate Report or anyone who signs up from this point until November 25th will receive a free trial login for BoilingFrogsPost.com that will allow you to log in and view the latest eye-opener reports and also the podcast, which you also need to log in to listen to when it's first released. So in order to uh, to get that, um, I have sent that around already to all of the subscribers on who have ever subscribed. I've sent it to whatever email address you used to subscribe. If you didn't receive that, please let me know and I will send it again. 
Uh, so please get in touch with me through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. And of course, anyone who does sign up from this point on until November 25th, that's when the login and uh, password for that trial subscription will end. So until that point, if you sign up between now and then, you will get a trial login for Boiling Frogs Post. And then the second uh, way that I'd like to try to repay something to the people who truly bring this information to you, uh, I'd like to uh, offer a subscriber newsletter. I've decided to start a an e-newsletter that I'll send around to subscribers to whatever email address they choose, and I will send that around on a monthly basis at the beginning. I had a lot of uh, feedback from subscribers that I floated the idea to that they don't want me to do too much and burn myself out, and I do agree that I'm almost pushed to the limits of my human ability right at the moment, so... In order not to burn myself out with a weekly newsletter, I'm going to start off with a monthly newsletter. Perhaps we can transition it into a weekly newsletter by uh, once I get the routine down. But for the time being, we'll try a monthly newsletter. So starting in December, all subscribers of The Corbett Report will receive an e-newsletter called The Corbett Report Subscriber. And it will contain, uh, well, I haven't hammered down the exact details of what it's going to contain, but I imagine a news roundup as well as um, some highlighted editorials and articles and things that I would recommend for the listeners out there. And also I'm planning on putting at least uh, one video that's uh, special only to the subscribers. It won't be a a type of news report like GRTV or something like that. It will just be me in a more informal setting, just talking about some of my thoughts and some of the ideas. I'd also like to try to put in polls so that subscribers can vote on, for example, the topics of future episodes of the podcast and and things like that in order to make this uh, Corbett Report website more responsive to the people who truly do make this possible. So once again, thank you to everyone who does sign up for their subscription to CorbettReport.com. I truly can't do it without you. But as always, we have a ton of information to get through today. So let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 207 of the Corbett Report, More Patriot Mythology. Those who have been listening to this podcast for a while, or those who have recently listened to episode 174 of this podcast, will know that back then, back in February of 2011, I released an episode devoted to Patriot mythology, i.e. trying to expose things that are propounded commonly in the alternative media, which I find to be factually incorrect, and thus not only not worthy of being propounded, but in fact detrimental for those who are propounding it. As I said in that episode, I think it's absolutely vital that we build our house on a bedrock of truth rather than on the quicksand of lies, for various obvious reasons, and I'm sure that no one would disagree with that, but still, have truths and outright lies continue to come out of the mouths of people and people in the media even who consider themselves to be part of the truth movement. Now, certainly this is not my intention to be up here on a high horse today looking down at people saying that I have everything right, they have everything wrong, and you must listen to me. That is certainly not the intent of this argument, and to the extent that this episode is taken to be that, well, then I've failed miserably. What this episode is meant to be is simply a description of practicing what I preach, which is to say that we must be able to be open-minded enough to recognize when we ourselves have made a mistake and propounded something that was not true, own up to that, and correct the the record by propounding the truth. 
And so, for example, in that original Patriot Mythology episode, episode 174 of this podcast, we went through, for, for example, spurious quotations that are often propounded by people because they tend to make their argument sound a little bit better, even though the people in question almost certainly didn't say those precise quotations. Or we looked at the, uh, the JFK myth about the Federal Reserve, and we also looked at uh, the Fat Bin Laden tape. And we examined and interrogated all of those things. So once again, I, I suggest that you go back and listen to that. But the point being that all of those things, to a certain extent, I've either participated in or, or helped to pass along at some point in the past until I realized that it simply was not true and I could not, in all good conscience, pass it on anymore. Similarly today, to show that I'm not on some high horse in all of this, trying to look down on others, all of the things which we are going to disprove or at least discount in today's episode are things that I myself have personally espoused at some point in the past. And now that I have realized the error of my ways, I'm here to correct those errors. And this is, once again, not to say that I'm always correct. In fact, quite the opposite, that I, just like anyone else, is prone to being wrong on many occasions. And I'm just trying to be man enough to admit it when I'm wrong. And I think that's all we can really ask of anybody, to own up to their problems and their, their, the things that they have gotten wrong in the past, and not to run away from those problems or pretend that they don't exist. Well, with all of that out of the way in terms of description for today's episode, let's get into the real meat and potatoes and start talking about some of the things which I would like to discount or disprove in today's episode. And I start by saying discount, because I think the first thing that I'm going to deal with is probably going to be the most controversial in a lot of ways, because a lot of people are quite wedded to this particular piece of information. And I don't, I can't in all good conscience say that, uh, that they are wrong in their interpretation of this. I just think that their interpretation is not necessarily the only one and certainly is not the interpretation which I think puts our whole argument on the best footing. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about this. I remember getting a call from the uh, fire department commander telling me that they were not sure they were gonna be able to contain the fire. I said, you know, we've had such terrible loss of life. Maybe the smartest thing to do is, is pull it. Uh, and they made that decision to pull. And then we watched the building collapse. That's right. That little clip has become one of the most widely known and widely played clips in all of 9-11 Truth media because it is argued that this clip really represents a confession by Larry Silverstein to having destroyed World Trade Center Building 7. Now, as my listeners no doubt know, World Trade Center Building 7, of course, was the third building in New York to fall on the day of 9-11, which it fell about 5.20 in the afternoon after having not been hit by any airplane. And, of course... World Trade Center Building 7 really is one of the big anomalies of 9-11 from a physical perspective in terms of the physical events that were happening on that day. I think World Trade Center Building 7 is one of the smoking guns, so to speak, and something that is not really adequately explained by NIST or any of the official explanations and is absolutely worthy of our attention and worthy of, a, of being a focus of that attention as we try to shine our alternative media light on things like 9-11. Having said that, the way that this clip has historically been handled by the 9-11 Truth Movement, I think is not really beneficial to the movement itself. 
Now, my point today, as I say, is not to say that it is factually wrong or that I can disprove that interpretation of that comment that has become an absolute ground ground bedrock of 9-11 truth for a lot of people, but simply that in the exact same way that a slogan like Bush knew is not only inaccurate, but in fact counterproductive to uh, spreading the underlying message of the 9-11 truth movement, I think Pullet can also be the wrong way to focus our attention on Building 7 and the anomalies thereof. For example, a lot of attention is given to the phrase Pullet itself, and whether or not this can actually mean the demolition of a building. One of the standard ways of trying to prove that this does in fact mean the demolition in the sense that uh, the 9-11 truth movement thinks it is being meant in this way is to play, for example, this clip from a later part of the exact same documentary. By mid-December, the Department of Design and Construction had leveled World Trade Center buildings 4 and 5. getting ready to pull building six. We have to be very careful how we demolish building six. We were worried about the building six coming down and then damaging the the slurry wall, so we wanted that particular building to fall within a certain area. There's a certain excitement in the air about bringing the last structure down at the World Trade Center. However, what is seldom played is the full context of that clip in which it is made absolutely explicit that the pullet being used, for example, in reference to WTC6, did not refer to the explosive demolition of the building as is asserted what is what happened to WTC7, but to a specific process by which a pre-weakened building is actually pulled down, physically pulled down with excavators and bulldozers and other heavy equipment, as is revealed in the full context of the clip. Oh, we're getting ready to pull building six. We have to be very careful how we demolish building six. We were worried about the building six coming down and then damaging the the slurry wall, so we wanted that particular building to fall within a certain area. the cables attached in four different locations going up and they'll be pulling pulling the building to the north. It's not every day you try to pull down an eight-story building with cables. Now I think actually surprisingly enough a very thorough and very good refutation of this particular interpretation of the pullet comment comes from a source that is very much against the entire aims and beliefs of the 9-11 truth community as a whole but nonetheless needs to be taken seriously and it's from, from a document by Brent Blanchard who is a controlled demolition expert at implosionworld.com and he wrote a document entitled A Critical Analysis of the Collapse of WTC Towers 1, 2, and 7 from an Explosive and Conventional Demolition Industry Viewpoint. Now I think there are a lot of things in this document that aren't, uh, that are strongmans, that are not particularly relevant to the assertions of the 9-11 truth movement. There's a lot of things that I think are very much wrong and in need of correction regarding this document, and I wouldn't suggest it overall as a good source of information about what happened on 9-11. But in terms of the particular context of the Pullet quote, 
when he has in his document assertion number seven, WTC seven was intentionally pulled down with explosives. No airplane hit it, and the building owner himself was quoted as saying he made a decision to pull it. Uh, it, and when he refutes that particular assertion, I think we have to actually take it somewhat seriously. And he says, point one, a building owner would never be in a position to dictate to fire personnel or emergency workers whether his building should be pulled or demolished. And point two, we have never once heard the term pull it being used to refer to the explosive demolition of a building, and neither has any blast team we've spoken with. The term is used in conventional demolition circles to describe the specific activity of attaching long cables to pre-weakened building and maneuvering heavy equipment, excavators, bulldozers, etc., to pull the frame of the structure over onto its side for further dismantlement. This author and our research team were on site when workers pulled over the six-story remains of WTC-6 in late fall 2001. However, we can say with certainty that a similar operation would have been logistically impossible at Ground Zero on 9-11, physically impossible for a building the size of WTC-7, and the structure did not collapse in that manner anyway. End quote. And no one is asserting that it did. So once again, that's a bit of a straw man, to, because obviously people are not saying it was pulled over by heavy equipment, but that is the implication of pull it according to people in the controlled demolition industry. And until I see convincing evidence otherwise, I'm going to have to side with the people who are saying that, that pull it is not a term that in this context means the explosive demolition of a building. And of course I am familiar with this phone call. Good afternoon, Milwaukee Company. Um, sorry, do I, is this controlled demolitions? Yes, it is. Okay, I was wondering if there was someone I could talk to uh, briefly just to ask a question I had. Well, what kind of question? Well, I just wanted to know what uh, a term meant in uh, demolition terms. Okay, what type of term? Well, if you were uh, in the demolition business and you said the the term pull it, I was wondering what exactly that would mean. Pull it? Yeah. Hmm. Put on it. Thank you. Sir? Yes? Pull it is when they actually pull it down. Oh. Well, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Bye. Bye. And no, I do not take that phone call to be sufficient evidence to disprove the hypothesis that pull it is a term that is only meant to term the, the physical pulling down of a building. Obviously, there are lots of ways to demolish a building, and one of them would be to physically pull it down exactly as what happened with WTC6 and exactly the way they talked about WTC6. So what does this all mean? Well, in the context of the Pullet comment, according to Silverstein's representatives, of course he was not talking about blowing the building up, he was talking about pulling the firefighters from the building. Now, parse that for what you will and make of it what you will. Personally, I think there's no way to really envision an inside job scenario of 9-11, especially one that does involve the controlled demolitions of WTC 1, 2, and 7, that does not involve Larry Silverstein. I think it would be almost impossible to imagine a scenario in which he was not in some way involved in this. If, if it is true that, in fact, 9-11 was an inside job, which I think everyone listening to this podcast probably would agree. But here is my point. I do not think that Larry Silverstein got up in front of the documentary cameras of PBS with the cameras rolling in an interview and, oops, accidentally admitted that he blew up the building and then later had to try to cover that fact up after it had been aired. 
do people who really believe that Larry Silverstein was in on all of this and really did participate in the destruction of the buildings which he had conveniently leased just shortly ahead of time actually got up in front of the cameras and admitted that on air oops and oh oh and oh it's too late they put it out in the documentary and oh some crafty people found that that wonderful piece of evidence is that truly the thought process at work here look let's put it this way personally i think larry silverstein's involvement in 9-11 would almost be a given given all of what we know about 9-11 and assuming all of the things about the, the explosions and the demolitions of the buildings but i do not think that he accidentally admitted to that in this documentary and as with the construction of any argument, I think it behooves us to give the benefit of the doubt to the people who are on the other side of the debate. Fine, absolutely, sure. Silverstein, he was talking about pulling the firefighters. He wasn't talking about blowing up the building. Sure, okay. But there are lots of other pieces of this puzzle which are much more effective for constructing a case that Larry Silverstein had something to do with 9-11. We don't have to point people to this in which... A lot of people are going to look at that and say he is clearly not talking about blowing up the building. Instead, we could start with some of the ground-based questions that we've used in terms of other people who undoubtedly would have had to have had a role in this, for example, Cheney or Rumsfeld, by saying, where was Larry on the morning of 9-11? And once again, that's a very fruitful question. Where were you on September 11th? Um, you know... Uh... I was home, um, and I, the only reason I wasn't where I was every morning, uh, subsequent to the 26th day of July, um, I was, my, my mornings were spent uh, usually at a breakfast meeting at Windows, an 8 o'clock breakfast meeting, Windows, the top of it, and then going down to visit with my tenants, my new tenants, um, at the trade center, getting to know them, understanding their problems and so forth, ascertaining how, I could, how we could service their needs better, um, and uh, which is a first, first, one of the first things you do when you acquire a property, begin to meet your, meet your tenants and start talking with them. Um, and so my mornings were spent at the trade center, and then by noon I was back uptown. And, uh, um, and so that particular morning, uh, because I have light colored hair and fair skin, and uh, I'm a newity to the dermatologist, mm-hmm. uh, my wife, God bless her, had made an appointment for me uh, at the doctor. And I remember dressing to go to the doctor. I'm finally saying to my wife, I said, sweetheart, I've got so much to do downtown. I've got to cancel this. I've got to go downtown. And she said, you're not going to cancel this appointment. You're going to the dermatologist. And, you know, having been married now for the, to the same woman for 46 years, you, you get this sense of determination on occasion, their voices. And I said, okay, okay, yes, dear, I'll go. <laughs> and then just minutes later, I uh, received a telephone call that turned on a television set and witnessed this horrendous circumstance. Uh, the first plane hitting and then the second plane hitting, of course, with the second hit. Uh, it became obvious that this was terrorism. Uh, but uh, thereafter was uh, absolute hell uh, because so many of our people were down there. Uh, we were in occupancy, temporary occupants of the 88th floor uh, of the North Tower uh, prior to moving permanently into the 91st floor of the North Tower. And so uh, uh, my children, 
two of my children, uh, Roger and Lisa, both work with me. Uh, they're on their way to work at 9 o'clock. Uh, many others, you know, about 100 people with us uh, on their way to work. Uh, and uh, as it turns out, had the plane struck 15 minutes later, uh, our firm would have been decimated. Um, um, as it is, we lost four of our people, uh, two of whom I had hired just a few weeks prior to that. Uh, and uh, there were six children among them. Uh, and it was, a, uh, it was a horrendous, horrendous experience. Now, if you want to see a textbook example of the body language that one employs when one is dissembling, go and physically watch that clip. Watch it online. I'll put the, doc the link in the documentation section for today's episode so you can watch it. And one can tell that he is uh, very much weighing and calculating his words as he speaks. And more information on that particularly interesting part of the story comes from Infowars.com from May of 2007. Silverstein warned not to to come to work. And it's, uh, it reads in part, quote, New York 9-11 truth activist Luke Rikowski claims WTC complex leaseholder Larry Silverstein and his daughter got a warning on the morning of 9-11 not to come to work that day. His source? Silverstein's own security guards. Rudkowski and his pr protest group We Are Change protested Silverstein outside the new WTC7 building last month and were confronted by Silverstein's security entourage who proceeded to harass the group before calling in a fake bomb threat to the NYPD in an attempt to have the demonstrators arrested. We talked to their private security staff. We talked to people who were there with Larry on 9-11. They said he got a phone call telling him not to show up to work, and he called his daughter up, and his daughter also never showed up to work, Rutkowski told the radio show this past weekend. End quote. So once again, we have Larry Silverstein admitting that he was scheduled to be in a meeting. He was usually at a meeting, but for some reason he went and decided to go to his doctor's appointment that morning and managed to miss the, uh, the beginnings of the whole event. And he would have, in any other normal day, would have been up there and would have almost certainly perished in the attacks. So once again, one of these people have this extremely nice alibi, which he has been careful to spread to the Wall Street Journal and to Bilderberger Charlie Rose and in any other media outlet where he could in order to firmly establish his alibi of that day. And here we have a claim. And again, we don't have to take this for, for this rock solid truth. Again, it's only a claim, but it is a claim that somebody has been told by the security guards that he was specifically warned off. So once again, we can evaluate that claim on its merits, but the point is that it is absolutely independent of whether or not the pullet comment is true. We can, of course, also look at the the insurance aspects of what happened that day, and I will direct people back to the 9-11 the Money Trail episode of this podcast, where we went through in, in some detail some of the aspects of the billions of dollars that Silverstein Properties was able to make on its very small investment into the lease of WT, the WTC complex. Now, once again, it is not my intention to say factually that the interpretation of Pullet that the 9-11 Truth community has tended to spread over the last 10 years is factually wrong or that I can prove that he, in fact, meant it in a certain way or didn't. But my point is that this is not the rock-solid evidence that we can base our argument on. We can use lots of much more compelling things to talk about what happened on that day. Now, I don't think we have to rely on the supposed gotcha moment, although it does make an excellent catchphrase and it's easy for people to see and understand quickly 
But I think when people of good conscience go and really start investigating it, they're not going to be convinced by it in the end. And I really think it makes something lighter of the case than we should be making it, because it's a very serious charge to say that someone was involved in this. We have to make it in a careful way. And if we put forward this pull it quote as the gotcha moment that explains the the whole collapse of WTC7, I think it cheapens the entire set of information that proves that to be the case. But having said that, moving away from that particular aspect of it, let's go into another thing which people have become very much emotionally wedded to uh, of late and has become one of those memes that seems probably at this point unstoppable. So I'm sure this part of this podcast will probably be wasted, but I suppose I must do it nevertheless. And that is the idea which, again, unfortunately, I myself have propounded in the past, that Benazir Bhutto claimed that bin Laden had been murdered by Omar Sheikh. He is someone that um, has had dealings with um, Jaish Muhammad, one of the banned groups with Maulana Azhar, who was in an Indian jail for decapitating three British uh, tourists and three American tourists. And um, he also had dealings with uh, Omar Sheikh, the man who murdered uh, Osama bin Laden. Now I know that having dealings with people uh, does not necessarily mean direct... Ah, a seemingly open and shut case. There, live on Frost Over the World, Benazir Bhutto, a reputable source, said in plain language right there for all to see that Osama bin Laden had been murdered, that he was dead. And it's very easy to understand in some ways why that suddenly became such an incredible meme with that moment of that interview having been seen by millions upon millions of people on YouTube under such headlines as Benazir Bhutto bin Laden murdered by Omar Sheikh or Benazir Bhutto bin Laden was murdered or BBC censors Bhutto Frost interview or Benazir Bhutto says Osama bin Laden is dead, etc, etc. Lots and lots and lots of videos are devoted to this this precise moment in this interview. And as I say, it's easy to understand why, because it seems to confirm something that the 9-11 truth community, for example, uh, not all of it, certainly, but certain segments of it certainly have held and have held for some time that bin Laden is, in fact, has, in fact, already been dead for some time and that whatever happened in Abbottabad in Pakistan was not the death of Osama bin Laden. However, does this clip even say what we think that it says? And does it confirm anything that we've already believed? Or does it, in fact, fly in the face of what we believed? What is the significance of this one part of that one interview? Well, let's go back and unpack that statement for a second. Does it even make sense within the context of, for example, the 9-11 truth community and what it commonly argues about Osama bin Laden? For example, it's commonly said that bin Laden has been dead for years because of his serious health problems, which were demonstrable and which he, uh, many, many people have admitted that he had, including no less than CBS News, which found that on the night of 9-10, he was in hospital in Rawalpindi under the watchful eye of the Pakistani uh, intelligence services who are in bed and were created by, as a matter of historical record, the American intelligence services, getting dialysis treatment for his kidney problems. CBS News has been told that the night before the September 11th terrorist attack, Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan. He was getting medical treatment with the support of the very military 
that days later pledged its backing for the U.S. war on terror in Afghanistan. Pakistan intelligence sources tell CBS News that bin Laden was spirited into this military hospital in Rawalpindi for kidney dialysis treatment. On that night, says this medical worker who wanted her identity protected, they moved out all the regular staff in the urology department and sent in a secret team to replace them. She says it was treatment for a very special person. The special team was obviously up to no good. The military had him surrounded, says this hospital employee who also wanted his identity masked. And I saw the mysterious patient helped out of a car. Since that time, he says, I have seen many pictures of the man. He is the man we know as Osama bin Laden. I also heard two army officers talking to each other. They were saying that Osama bin Laden had to be watched carefully and looked after. Those who know bin Laden say he suffers from numerous ailments, back and stomach problems. Ahmed Rashid, who has written extensively in the Taliban, says the military was often there to help before 9-11. There were reports that Pakistan intelligence had helped the Taliban by dialysis machines um, and the rumor was that these were wanted for Osama bin Laden. Doctors at the hospital told CBS News there was nothing special about that night but they refused our request to see any records. Government officials tonight denied that Osama bin Laden had any medical treatment on that night. But it was Pakistan's President Musharraf who said in public what many suspected that bin Laden suffers from kidney disease, saying he thinks bin Laden may be near death. His evidence, watching this most recent video showing a pale and haggard bin Laden, his left hand never moving. Bush administration officials admit they don't know if bin Laden is sick or even dead. And so it is argued that the ridiculous narrative of uh, Osama bin Laden hiding out in his cave fortress in Afghanistan without electricity or running water or anything of that sort, somehow managing to survive for, for such a length of time before being whisked away to Abbottabad in Pakistan and whatever the official narrative of the Osama bin Laden fairy tale is, could not possibly be the case. And that is, in fact, borne out by the photographic record. If you go and actually look at the uh, the last few months of what would presumably have been Osama bin Laden's life at the end of 2001, in the last verifiable video documentary footage of Osama bin Laden, one can definitely see a marked progress in the deterioration of Osama bin Laden's health until the time of his final interview in December of 2001, when he was giving a, an address in a video in which he can barely, uh, he doesn't in fact move his left arm at all. He is visibly gaunt and pale. His, uh, his beard is grayed and he, he looks on death's doorstep in many ways. And I suggest people go and take a look at that, those photographs. I think that tends to bear out the general idea that he was in a state of deteriorating health. And then, of course, it was reported, as I have gone over in my article numerous times, that Osama bin Laden was uh, dead before, of course, we he was found and killed in Abbottabad, according to the U.S. government. And I will put in the link to my article in which, unfortunately, I included Benazir Bhutto in that list. I really shouldn't have, because when one starts to take a look at this, this claim, one realizes that, no, she was not saying that bin Laden had been murdered by Omar Sheikh. It was clearly a slip of the tongue in which she was trying to talk about Daniel Pearl, who everyone knows or suspects that he was the murderer of Daniel Pearl. And he was, she was talking about it in the context of having mentioned bin Laden earlier in that interview. But for a little bit more proof that this was not, in fact, what she meant to say, 
one can actually turn to a radio interview that she did after this Frost interview in which she talked about Osama bin Laden in the context of him being alive. Is Musharraf doing everything he can to protect your, your nuclear weapons? And number two, is he doing everything he can to help the United States in its war on terrorism? Well, I think Osama bin Laden must be rubbing his hands with glee as he looks at what's happening in Pakistan and how there is civil unrest in the country, how large parts of the tribal areas have fallen under the sway of his supporters, as have parts of the frontier province. And now they're moving into yet another state known as the northern areas. And we've got a very heavy police force, 4,000 policemen around the four walls of my house, 1,000 on each. They've even entered the neighbor's house. And I was just telling one of the policemen, I said, should you be here after us? Shouldn't you be looking for Osama bin Laden? And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, this is our job. We're just doing what we're told. Now, I know what some people who are absolutely hardened in their ways and can never admit that they signed on to something that was just not true will say when confronted with, for example, this proof positive that Benazir Bhutto did not believe Osama bin Laden to be to have been murdered by Omar Sheikh and in fact believed him to be alive when she was speaking in 2007. And they are going to say, well, of course, they got to her and they made her say this during the interview because they realized she had let the truth slip out on the BBC. But really... For anyone who is truly continuing to assert that Benazir Bhutto said that Osama bin Laden had been murdered by Omar Sheikh and that that therefore is proof that Osama bin Laden was dead many years ago, please explain to yourself and then explain to me or anyone else how it is that Omar Sheikh Omar Sheikh came to murder Osama bin Laden. Why he would have done that, what, how that fits into any of the other knowledge of what we know about these, these characters in this, in this play that we know is going on, what on earth does that have to do with anything? It doesn't actually confirm anything that's, that's been held in the past. It doesn't have anything to do with, for example, the, the kidney dialysis problems and everything that Osama bin Laden had been undergoing that was presumably the reason for his death if he had, did indeed die many years ago. It has nothing to do with any of the narratives of what we know. Do, do, do the people who are arguing this even know who Omar Sheikh is or what he, that the fact that he's been in prison for many years? Do, do they have any understanding of this context or do they just hear that Osama bin Laden has been murdered and this is a big cover-up? I would venture to say it's the latter. So I demand that people who continue to assert that Benazir Bhutto actually said that Osama bin Laden was murdered come up with a coherent narrative of how, why, or in what po possible context Omar Sheikh came to murder Osama bin Laden. And until that it happens, I'm still going to assert that, yes, Benazir Bhutto made a slip of the tongue. And it's unfortunate that it was not corrected at that exact time, because unfortunately it's became what it's become with this video, as I say, having been seen millions and millions and millions of times online. And now any time you talk about Osama bin Laden and the fact that he may have died many years ago, it almost inevitably raises the, the specter of Benazir Bhutto's comments. And you will see that liberally peppered over all of the video comments, for example, on videos about Osama bin Laden's death. But once again, I think it is people espousing something that they don't truly understand and that does not, in, in the end, indicate what they think it indicates. Once again, it's the weakest possible proof that one could use in this case, and it only builds our entire argument on a house of quicksand. 
So it is my assertion until I get something otherwise that Benazir Bhutto did not in fact say that Osama bin Laden had been murdered. It was in fact a slip of the tongue. Now, finally, I would like to finish this episode with our third debunking, I suppose, if you want to call it that, of something that is commonly held and commonly been espoused by many, many people regarding the first WTC bombing back in 1993. And as I say, I have myself advocated this numerous times in numerous different productions that I've done until I was corrected about the facts of of the context of this. But first, let's establish what it is that most people believe about the WTC bombing. And we'll go to a a very famous uh, CBS News clip for the context of that. Last winter, the FBI was praised for its speed in cracking the case of the World Trade Center bombing and bringing four suspects to trial. Now, there is some evidence that the FBI may have known of the plot in advance through an informant and might, might even have stopped the bombing that killed six people. Correspondent Jacqueline Adams has the story. FBI agents might have been able to prevent last February's deadly explosion at New York's World Trade Center. They discussed secretly substituting harmless powder for the explosives, but they didn't, according to the FBI's own informant, Imad Salem. Unbeknownst to the FBI at the time, Salem recorded many of his conversations with his handlers. I'm holding 903 pages of draft transcripts. William Kunzler represents Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman and several others charged with conspiring to blow up a series of New York City landmarks four months after the World Trade Center bombing. That case has not yet gone to trial. Kunzler confirmed newspaper reports of the Salem transcripts. In one, Salem complains to an FBI agent, since the bomb went off, I feel terrible, I feel bad, I feel here is people who don't listen. The agent replies, hey, I mean, it wasn't like you didn't try and I didn't try. You can't force people to do the right thing. There is material in here to show gross governmental misconduct. Today, attorneys for the defendants in the ongoing World Trade Center bombing case formally asked for the transcripts of Salem's tapes. Quite frankly, beyond me, why uh, now, the fourth week into the trial, still don't have these materials. Prosecutors have refused to comment publicly, but legal experts say the defense may have no right to those transcripts. It's not a defense to a crime to say, if only the government had stopped me, I wouldn't have done it. So this isn't material that ordinarily the defense would be entitled to. In court today, a witness from the Ford Motor Company linked debris recovered from the explosion site to a Ford van where defendant Mohammed Salama was arrested less than a week after the bombing. Jacqueline Adams, CBS News, New York. From these facts, usually a case is built using such things as, for example, as I highlighted in my WTC 1993 was an FBI job video, which I put back on in, on YouTube back in 2008. Uh, the actual recordings, which you can download of the conversations between Ahmad Salem and his FBI handler, John Antichev, in which they're arguing about uh, the uh, the compensation uh, and he's talking about the, the bomb being built in a different way and a different place etc etc and usually an unproblematic straight line is drawn from these facts to the WTC bombing itself and saying that the bombing was perpetrated by the bomb that Salam had Salem had built and that he was in fact trying to blow the whistle etc etc however the story the actual story is is more complicated 
as these stories usually are, but still much more interesting. It's interesting to know the actual way that this transpired. So for more on that, we're going to turn to uh, one of the well, one of my favorite guests, a really, really great researcher and someone who I think does excellent work and who I don't hesitate to recommend at any turn, Tom Secker, who has been exploring the history of false flag terrorism and some of the specific instances, most notably, of course, in his documentaries on 7-7, 7-7 Seeds of Deconstruction, and 7-7 Crime and Punishment. And of course, people can turn to my hour-long GRTV feature interview with Tom Secker earlier this year for uh, more about that work. But on this work, this is in fact the, the first context in which Tom Secker ever contacted me to, to try to fill me in on some of the information that he thinks is more important about the WTC bombing. And I'm glad that he did that and reached out to me because, once again, I am only going for the truth and not trying to purposefully give out information that is wrong. So let's go back to my first ever conversation with Tom Secker in which we go over some points which flesh out our understanding of the WTC 1993 bombing. And this interview was recorded in the, on the 29th of July, 2010, and of course can be downloaded in its entirety at CorbettReport.com. Well, I, I understand you wanted to come on the program to set the record state straight on some inaccuracies that float through the quote-unquote truth movement about the role of Emad Salem in the WTC 1993 bombing. And I believe... You encountered the Corbett Report through one of my videos online in which I presented a selection from the Ahmad Salem informant tapes. Is that correct? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've been a reader of, um, of your work for some time, and I, I saw your documentary um, about Al-Qaeda several months ago. Um, and it, it was more that that video was what motivated me to get, get in touch with you. I mean, I've been following your work for a while. I see. All right. So, uh, of course, WTC 1993 is something that I've touched on a, a few times now in, in various videos that I've done. But uh, it's not something that I've devoted enough detail to because it is an extremely complex plot. So, obviously, there's there's more to this than, than I'm able to usually get across in a short YouTube video. So... Um, so I don't know if you'd like to go back to the origin of the plot or to concentrate on Salem, Ahmad Salem in particular, but why don't you pick this story up where you think it will be best for the listener? Well, I mean, the most straightforward thing is to, is to deal with Salem first. I mean, he was he's widely described as being, you know, FBI informant that bombs the World Trade Center, built the bomb that was used on the World Trade Center. And that... It's kind of true, but kind of not true. The story is, is considerably more complicated than, than that headline would, would necessarily have you believe. Um, he actually was an informant for the FBI on three separate occasions. So uh, if I just sort of give you a rundown of, of the Salem story, uh, then it, 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 it will probably make things clearer. Um, he was a, a former Egyptian army, army officer. He served in the 70s and 80s. He may have been as highly ranked as a lieutenant colonel, but he may have been boasting about that. He was a, reputedly a bit of a braggart, a bit of a blowhard. Um, he comes to the U.S. in 1987. He's like a lot of immigrants. He has dreams of a better life for himself, better life for his family. Uh, he was first recruited by the FBI in 1988. They want him to inform against... Uh, KGB and Russian Mafia in New York. Um, this doesn't really go anywhere because the FBI doesn't really trust Salem. They think he might be a double agent still working for Egyptian intelligence. So the relationship doesn't last very long. Uh, Salem goes away. He works in several menial jobs. He works at Stock Boy, cab driver, 
Um, he worked low-level security for a couple of apartment stores. He ends up as a sort of in-house, in-house detective or security man at the Woodward Hotel. Uh, he's re-recruited by the FBI in August 1991, um, again, to inform on Russians. They were concerned with the Berlin Wall coming down, with the Soviet Union collapsing, that mobsters and KGB spies and what have you, that they'd be looking for a new base of operations, and New York would be an obvious place for that to happen. Um, so he informs on the Russians. He, he develops a very good relationship with his handler, a Texan woman called Nancy Floyd, a apparently very loyal and very diligent FBI caseworker. Um, one day in 1991, he says to Nancy Floyd, there are more dangerous people out there. You know, I mean, I'm informing on these Russians, but there are more dangerous people in New York that I know about. And he names her the blind sheikh, uh, Omar Abdel Rahman. And he says, this, the blind sheikh and his followers are, you know, more worthy of following than, than the KGB and the Russian mob. So Nancy Floyd, she's a little maybe out of her depth on this. Uh, she calls in the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is this multi-agency group. Um, they have them all over the place now, but this, this was the, one of the original one, the inaugural one in New York. Uh, and they have police, FBI, State Department, immigration. They're all working together. Um, and this is where Salem meets Lou Napoli and John Antichep, who is the guy he's heard talking to on the recordings later on. Um, and they become his sort of co-handlers. And he starts infiltrating the Blind Shakes group and, and informing on them. Um, and he quits his job at the hotel. They, you know, they cover his salary. They pay him, I think it was $500 a month at that time. Um, the deal is he is a uh, pure intelligence asset. He's not wearing a wire. He's not expected to testify in court. He's you know, never going to be a witness. He is just there to give them information on, in secret. Um, however, both Antichev and Napoli are, are very busy men. They don't have time to debrief him. So, And because his relationship with Nancy Floyd was good, it turned out that she was often the one who would actually meet him late at night. She would talk to him, she would fill out the 302s saying what he'd, what he'd found out, um, what, what information he'd got. Um, so he reports that the blind sheikh and his followers, who are a sort of, they're a mixture of miscellaneous Egyptians um, and veterans of the Soviet-Afghan war. Um, Salem finds out that they are, they're planning, they have a sort of vague plot in mind to do with Jewish locations. They're looking at bombing, I don't know, jewelry stores and synagogues, that sort of thing in New York. Um, and he starts helping gather, helping them gather materials to, to build a bomb to do this. This is what he's actually later referring to on the tapes. He's not really referring to an explicit bomb uh, uh, plot to bomb the World Trade Center. It was just he was involved in getting the materials together for them. Um, so... Meanwhile, there's a new supervisor comes in at the Joint Terrorism Task Force, a guy called Carson Dunbar. He decides he doesn't trust Salem. You know, I mean, the FBI has never been entirely sure about Salem up until this point. Um, Dunbar also decides he, he can't trust Nancy Floyd either. Um, so he sacks Salem. He, well, he orders them to sack Salem and eventually puts Floyd through this very, very lengthy and brutal sort of internal investigation where she's accused of 
all sorts of things from everything from having an affair with Salem to fiddling her expenses, none of which is true, but it was a sort, a sort of punishment. I mean, exactly why that happened isn't, isn't really clear. Um, so Salem was actually sacked by the FBI in the summer of 1992, and it isn't until six, seven months later that the World Trade Center is actually bombed. Um, and while there was an idea in this group floating around about bombing the World Trade Center at that point, it wasn't any kind of formalized, explicit plot that was going on. Um, so like I say, to say that Salem built the bomb that was used on the World Trade Center isn't exactly true. Um, he was involved with the group, very much so, um, and did some incriminating things and potentially some criminal things um, as this plot was developing. But it isn't the case of, you know, he built a bomb and then a week later someone else drove it to the World Trade Center and, and set it off. There is a, a passage of time in between that is often overlooked, I think, uh, it would be fair to say. Um, and in that time, that's when Ramzi Youssef turns up and he was the one who actually built the bomb that they used, that they loaded into the van and, and drove to the World Trade Center Tower and, and blew the thing up. Um, I, I do understand that interpretation, but uh, to be fair, uh, it's from the the recording itself. The way that he phrases it is very much leading in the direction of this was the bomb that was actually used in the bombing. Uh, when he says, I don't think that because we was start already bombing, building the bomb, which is went off in the World Trade Center, which seems to indicate a bomb that, that, that was actually used. When we know that the actual bomb was, in fact, built by, by Ramzi Youssef, is that right? Yes, yes. I mean, we've got to be careful here, because obviously Imad Salem is, is speaking in slightly broken English, so it's, it is a little unclear whether we're talking about the same bomb or whether we're talking about he helped them put... Uh, I mean, one thing that is possible is that he was helping them put the sort of detonator, that part of the bomb, together, but that the main charge, the actual sort of explosive, the dangerous part, uh, was what was put together by Ramzi Youssef. So you could say, potentially that they both contributed to the construction of this bomb. And that may indeed be, be what he's saying. But also on the tapes, he does say that um, at the end of the recording that, you know, ultimately it was built somewhere else, that this bomb was, that the actual bomb that was used was built somewhere else. He implies that. So it is a little uncertain as to exactly how far it had got at the point that Ramsey Youssef came into it. Um, but as I say, the, the main charge of the bomb was this, urea nitrate fuel oil concoction that was very much of, of Ramsey Youssef's design. Um, but perhaps this is getting a little bogged down in the details because, as I say, the point is, Salem was involved in this group. Uh, he certainly did some things that were incriminating while he was involved with them. Um, he is theoretically uh, a criminal because of that. But of course, because he was an FBI informant, that doesn't count. Um, and perhaps more significantly than that, after the World Trade Center was bombed at the end of uh, February 1993, Salem was re-recruited for a third time by the FBI. Um, I think perhaps they realized that they'd let go their best shot of, of infiltrating this, this plan and stopping it, or possibly something else, but uh, they re-recruit him, and this is where we get the Bridges and Tunnels plot, the New York Landmarks plot from. Um, and in that role, uh, Salem was actually wearing a wire, 
uh, he was recording his conversations with the blind sheikh and with the various members of, of the groups that were planning to blow up the bridges and tunnels. Um, and he was also obviously wearing a wire as he was talking to his handlers. This is where we we get the recordings from. Um, but it was one of the contentions of the defence lawyers in the case for the bridge and tunnels plot, the New York landmarks plot, um, that Salem was effectively a provocateur, that it was his idea that he was putting the suggestions to them for targets and for methods and, you know, the actual details um, that turned a kind of general criminal intent in these people into something that was actually prosecutable, something you could take to court and say, look, they went through these steps in order to prove that they were terrorists. Um, so it is. it does remain a little unclear as to quite how far Salem went in, in the World Trade Center bombing, uh, in the plan, um, and how much of the bomb he actually constructed. The tapes aren't entirely clear. Once again, Tom Secker of Howard Beale's NewsHour, and of course the 7-7 documentaries Seeds of Deconstruction and Crime and Punishment, and as I understand, the forthcoming webmaster of a forthcoming website, but hopefully more on that later. Well, let me wrap things up there. This is, again, a lot of information to take in, and I know that this does tend to have an inflammatory uh, response in a lot of people. Although, to be fair, I have had nothing but positive response to episode 174, the original Patriot Mythology episode of this podcast, because I would like to believe that people will take this in this context and in the way that it's being offered, not as a way of trying to lord it over anyone to say that you are wrong and that all of this is silly, but simply to say that we must continue to interrogate our own notions and that is very much what I'm dedicated to doing here at CorbettReport.com so I offer this as further proof that I am continuing to evaluate statements that I have made in the past and will continue to do so and I'm always open to correction on things of this nature so let's leave things there for this week I am your host James Corbett thanking you very much for joining me and hoping that you'll join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.